have your Bibles, go ahead and open them uh, to John chapter 10, which we just read. Um, we're going to be looking at, at that passage today and talking about Jesus as the Good Shepherd. Um, just to introduce myself, if you're uh, visiting or if you're new, I'm, I'm David, uh, Father David Smith, and I'm a priest for education and uh, family ministries here. Our rector, our head pastor, Brian Poppy, is out today celebrating uh, the retirement of his father-in-law with their family. Um, so uh, that's why he's not here, but, and I'm kind of doing all this stuff. <laughs> Normally there's some teamwork going on, but uh, I'm stepping in to do as much as I can. Um, and he asked me to, um, to uh, preach this passage in his stead, and I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity. Um, so if, you, if you're there in John chapter 10, we're going to jump right in and um, let's start reading uh, the setting here. The story is really awesome because uh, Jesus just, I don't know, three months before this, I do know, three months before this, um, he was talking to them during a different feast, John tells us, about being the good shepherd. And then it says, then it was the time of the Feast of Dedication. So it's been a couple months, um, and then he's, he's uh, here at this Feast of Dedication, and he's walking in this place uh, called the Colony of Solomon. So what is all that? Let's get the setting, and then let's read this passage together and really understand it. And when we get to the end, uh, we're going to do a time of reflection and really think about what Christ is for us as our good shepherd. So go ahead and look at John uh, chapter 10, you can uh, pull up a physical copy, or I'd encourage you, if you have a phone or a Bible app, pull it out. It's okay if you have your phone out. Um, just don't text. Okay. It's like, who texts anymore? Um, some people. Here we go. So, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, John 10, 22 says. Okay, what is that? Uh, the Feast of Dedication. I was a little hazy on this when I first opened it. Uh, that's Hanukkah. It's Hanukkah. The Feast of Dedication. Um, so this is not a feast that you would find designated by God in the Old Testament. The Feast of Dedication is something that was instituted almost 200 years earlier in the 160s BC um, when Judas Maccabeus and a bunch of other uh, Israelites uh, stormed and took over. They call it the Maccabean Revolt. That's kind of like a Roman. Uh, uh, it's like the, the, the War of Southern Aggression, right? They have like all these different names, depending on who names the war, from different, well, the Maccabean Revolt was actually the, the Jews taking back their temple, which had been taken over by the Romans. The Romans had come in, and a Roman uh, general had actually sacrificed uh, another animal, not a lamb or a designated lamb by God or an animal by God, but another animal to, I think it was to Jupiter, right? Had desecrated their place of worship, had uh, uh, not, there had not been worship there for a long time, and so they go in to take it back to cleanse it. And then to rededicate the temple to God for the reinstitution of worship at a time when they felt like there was no hope, there was no way they were going to get back what was theirs as the people of God. Uh, they found deliverance through a leader, uh, and they were uh, now able to worship God in the temple. So there was this mighty act of overthrowing these false governors, the Romans, to then reinstitute worship for the people of God in the place of worship. Does that make sense? So then they lit the candles, and for eight days, or seven days I think it is, they party, and then on the eighth day they end. So they're celebrating God, they're worshiping God, they're rededicating the temple, and so that's what the Feast of Hanukkah is. It's this uh, a feast of dedication. It's this remembrance of how God gave them deliverance from the Romans at that time. So it was taking place at Jerusalem, so it's in this context. Now, you know how stories work, um, I think, where the setting is not incidental. The setting is kind of part of what's going on. The setting matters. 
when you're, when you're crafting a story. And when you're Jesus, you're always crafting the story because you're God. So Jesus is here at this specific time. And throughout John, he shows up at specific feasts to say specific things about himself, to proclaim that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel. He's God in the flesh. Okay, So he's coming at this specific feast of dedication when there was deliverance from overlords, there's deliverance from false shepherds by a leader of Israel to reinstitute the true worship of God. Kind of see where this is going, right? Okay, so Jesus shows up. It's the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. Really important setting. Okay, it was winter. Pause. So here we go. John uh, and his gospel is sneaky, sneaky. Okay, he's not just telling us that it's winter. It was actually winter, but it's also winter in a, in a, a larger and metaphorical sense. So let me show you this. Um, in John 3, Nicodemus, who's on the, high, the council of, of the uh, leaders of Israel at the time, who are not fans of Jesus, he comes when? In the night to come and talk to Jesus about this message that he's teaching. And he can't understand that he has to be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven by the Holy Spirit. The darkness that he comes in corresponds to his lack of understanding of Jesus' message. You're like, ah, come on. He's just trying to hide from people so he's not found out that he's going to see Jesus. Yes, and, it's both. Because the next day, or the next story, excuse me, the woman at the well comes to visit Jesus at high noon when it's bright. Now, she's actually coming in the middle of the day at the well because also, just like Nicodemus, no one's going to be there. No one goes, it's about to be like 100 degrees here. You're not going to go out, if you can help it, to mow your grass or to do whatever in the middle of the day. When are you going to do it? Sunrise, right? Or sundown, when it's coolest, the coolest part of the day. So she's coming at high noon, probably so that she doesn't around other people. But also, when the sun is brightest, here comes a woman who responds in faith and with understanding to the message that this is the Messiah. And she goes and tells everybody, I found the one that the prophet spoke about, and they all come, and there's faith, and there's belief, there's conversion, and they receive the message. So the darkness and the light there stand for something significant in the passage. And there's this, this happens again and again. Well, in this situation, it's winter. What is, what is winter in a place where they actually have snow? I guess we have snow occasionally. But um, what does this suggest? Um, it suggests that the warmth of God's love, the warmth of God's light of revelation is absent. There's a cold, kind of stark reality. Um, it's, it's fascinating. Has anyone here read Dante's Inferno or Dante's Divine Comedy? Or at least you know about it, right? Um, if, you've, if you've read it, if you haven't read it, you're probably thinking, okay, in the, in the Inferno, it's called Inferno, right? And you're thinking this is hell, and we use the term Inferno now or like infernal to think like fiery. Well, Dante's hell, as you get closer and closer and closer to the bottom or to the middle where Satan is, you know what's happening? He depicts Satan as frozen in ice up to, the, up to the waist. And he's beating his wings at the bottom of hell. And as he beats his wings to try to ascend to God, he actually creates a cold breeze to freeze himself even longer. So it's this, there's this par, um, irony where he's trying to get out with his wings and it's locking him in place and freezing hell over. When hell freezes over, well, it does in Dante's story, um, why? Because the closer you get to God, the brighter the light of his glory is, the brighter the warmth of his presence is, the farther you get away from him, the colder, darker, and, and uh, motionless it becomes. God is eternal motion. God is eternal activity. 
God is eternal, um, dynamic uh, relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And out of the overflow of that dynamic life, uh, he creates all things. Out of the overflow of that dynamic life of, of movement and warmth and love and relationship, he creates us, you, me. And out of the overflow of that, he actually redeems us out of sin. God's not just sitting there waiting for things to happen. He's constantly at work. And it's actually the further you get away from him, the more uh, sedentary and, and cold and lifeless things get. He is the source of life and activity and movement and vitality. Uh, and so getting away from him is this. Okay, so it's winter. So we've done one verse. Sorry. <laughs> verse 22 is done. Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. What's a colonnade? The colonnade, so you had the temple in the middle, like the temple proper, right? And then they had, they said the temple, it kind of referred to the temple complex at the time. So you had the, the actual, like, this is where the worship happened. And then around that, you had these walls, and it's like Gentiles, people who aren't Jew, uh, Jewish, people who aren't male, couldn't come in there. But outside that wall, they had these, these covered walkways with like these arches, and you could walk through them, right? And they had one, the Colonnade of Solomon. And the Colonnade of Solomon was uh, traditionally the place where Solomon knelt down, and when they dedicated the temple to God, the first temple that was built in Jerusalem, they dedicated it to God, uh, Solomon knelt down and prayed, and he offered basically Israel to the Lord. Um, there's so much going on there, we don't have time. However, uh, it's also a place where teachers would regularly gather to teach, or people would regularly gather to discuss matters of, of doctrine, matters of, of the law, right? Um, so he's there, and so it's not a coincidence that in verse 24, so, that so is important, because so the Jews gathered around him. So they were, and when it says the Jews in John's gospel, it's normally referring to the Jewish leaders. This isn't like all Jews, right? This is the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the counselor, whoever, the, the, the scribes, they come and they gather around him. Well, they weren't, um, they were probably looking for him, but also it would have been common for them to kind of be there at the same time because this is where people are gathering to teach and to talk. Does that make sense? Okay. So the Jews gathered around him. So let's start back over. It's the time of the Feast of Dedication. All that's going on there, right? It's winter. He's walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. I'm trying to give it a little like sinister uh, tone. Uh, but here we go. This is not a positive interaction, is it? They're gathering around him. So you're just like walking by yourself on the street one day and a group of men surround you and start questioning you. That's an uncomfortable situation. doesn't matter who you are. This is what happens to Jesus. He's getting cornered, not cornered, he's getting encircled, and he's getting pinned down. Hey, how long are you going to keep us in suspense, buddy? And it literally in Greek says, how long will you take our soul up from us? How long will you lift up our souls? So it's actually a play on words there. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. This is lift up your heart to the Lord is happening throughout the Psalms. This is a common phrase throughout the, the Bible. This is the only place in the Bible where it's not used um, 
positively. How long will you lift up our souls? This is irony, right? They're actually not like pumped about Jesus. Up to this point, there's been conflict. Um, they're saying, they're, they're actually saying, we don't really believe this guy. And ironically, they're showing us how we ought to respond to the Lord, which is to lift up our hearts to the Lord, to believe in him, to, to love him. But they're doing it ironically. We should do it unironically, okay? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answers them, I told you, and you don't believe. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham, Abraham was, I am. Um, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Um, the Father is working on the Sabbath, and I am working. I mean, I don't do anything without, uh, I don't do anything apart from the Father. He's, these are the kinds of things he said. He's spoken really plainly about who he is, and they haven't listened. Um, up till now, though, he's made himself to be the Son of God, which is a theological claim, which they care about. They're trying to get him to say, are you the Christ, the anointed one, the King of Israel? And you know who cares about that? the current Roman instated king of Israel, Herod, who is the one who actually sent Jesus to be crucified, right? Herod, when he's talking to the Jews, he's like, I don't care if he calls himself the son of God. We've got all kinds of people who claim to be God in our, like there's, we had all kinds of gods. I don't care about that. And they're like, he makes himself to be the king of the Jews. And if you're no, and you're no friend of Herod's if you don't do something about it. That's what they end up saying. So they're trying to trap him into a political statement about who he is as king so they can then pin him with that in front of Herod, which is ultimately what they do under false accusations. Well, I mean, it's a true accusation that he says he's the Christ, but he did nothing wrong. He was innocent. He was crucified um, unjustly, unjustly. So they're trying to get him to say, if you're the Christ, uh, that he, he's trying to get them to say, are you the Christ? He says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So he said, he, he said who he is, and then he's shown who he is. He walked on water. He multiplied the fish and the loaves. He um, uh, healed the blind man, healed the guy who couldn't walk, et cetera, et cetera. He's doing all these things, and people are saying, no one's ever done this kind of stuff. This, this, he must be from God. Verse 25, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, the order of this verse is odd. You don't believe because you're not from my sheep. He doesn't say you're not from among my sheep because you don't believe. You see that? So you'd think if they believe, they become part of his sheep. Jesus is giving us a 50,000 foot eternal view of how he sees things. His sheep, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. You see, before you ever hear the call of God, God knows you and calls you his sheep. So that when he calls you, you hear him and you will follow him. This is really good news. Jesus is saying, before, and we're going to listen to a song, before you ever spoke a word, I was singing over you. Before you ever were thought of by your parents or by your grandparents, I knew you by name 
and I set my affection upon you, and I've loved you with an everlasting love, and I have determined to call you to myself to give you the fullness of life out of my mercy and to be your shepherd, to guide you into paths of peace and vitality and eternal life. Look what he says in verse 28. What does the shepherd do for his sheep? He has sheep, he calls them. What does the shepherd do for his sheep? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. In the Greek it says, they will not perish forever. I love that. Or into the age. They will not perish forever. I give them eternal life. What is eternal life? Does it just mean you live forever? No, it's the dynamic present reality of enjoyment of God. It's this incorruptible and eternal enjoyment of God that starts now in John's gospel and goes into, yes, everlasting time. It goes forever. But this, this eternal life is what's given to the sheep of Christ. What's given to the sheep of the false shepherds? They're trampled upon. They're not given eternal life. It says in Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel uh, 34 that we just read that the, the shepherds actually trample the grass and they, they eat the good grass and then they leave the trampled grass for the sheep. And they, they plod through the water and that muddy water that they plodded through is what the sheep have to drink. There's all kinds of false shepherds in this world that try to lead us. The Romans were trying to be these rulers and shepherds over Israel. All they did was oppress them. All they did was take away their worship of God. What are the false shepherds in this world? that try to lead you into paths that they call happiness, but are actually destruction, that actually leave you tired, that actually leave you burnt out, hopeless. I give them eternal life, Jesus says, and they will never perish. And then here's the promise, the other promise, that if you belong to him, if you're a sheep, no one will ever snatch you out of his hand. It's really good news. No one will ever snatch you out of his hand. That's a, that's a promise. Well, how can you say that? How can you say, Jesus, that no one would snatch us out of, out of your hand? How, how do we know that, that the hand which symbolizes might and power and authority, how do we know that it's, it's strong enough? How do we know your grip strength is good? How do we know that's going to work? Well, he says, my father, look in verse 29, my father who has given them to me, is greater than all. So there's no one greater than God the Father. There's no one mightier. There's no one power, more powerful. He's the one who said, let there be, and it was. He's the one who says, I will save, and he saves. He's the one who says, I will judge, and he judges rightly. There's no one greater than the Father. And he says, that one, than which there is no one greater, he gave them to me, and look, no one is able so instead of no one will, no one is able. There's no ability from the enemy, not from you, not from me, not from anyone to snatch things, to steal things out of his hand. Nothing is able to be stolen out of the Father's hand. Okay, so the Father's hand, he's greater than all. He's all powerful. What about you, Jesus? I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So this one, than whom there is no greater, and me, had the same grip strength. My little son, he's one, turning one, in like seven days or something, six days, and on the 14th. 
Um, he's learning to walk. It's a lot of fun. It's so cute. He's taking a few steps, but he likes to walk around and I'll hold his hand. And you know, he does this thing. And they walk kind of with their legs real far out because they're trying to figure out the balance, right? And sometimes he'll take a step and his foot will just go. And he's like, whoa, you know, and I'm holding his hand. Um, I'm, I'm way stronger than him, like way stronger than him. Uh, he's still a little baby. And his stumbling, his falling, his learning how to figure it out, his walking, that's not going to rip him out of my hand. I've got him. I'm his father. I'm holding him up. And Christian, you're stumbling. You're trying to figure it out. Your mistakes, your sin that you can't get over, that's not going to rip you out of, out of the, the hand of the father, out of the hand of the son. You know that? Now he's going to lift you back up. He's not going to leave you on the ground. Like, oh, I'm holding your hand, but you're just going to stay in sin. I love when you're just laying on the ground and I'm holding you. God, that's not how God does. He lifts you back up, doesn't he? He lifts you back up. And then what if I'm walking my son down the sidewalk? You know, he's doing his little thing, toddling. He's trying to figure that out. And some, let's imagine someone weaker than me because there are people stronger than me, clearly. And, or a band of people comes up to me. Let's imagine that I have like limitless strength, right? Let's imagine there's like a God-strength man holding my son with my name. And someone comes up to try to take him from me and I, I, no one can steal him from my hand. No one is greater than the father. They can't come and snatch him. Get off my street. Get away from my son, fool. <laughs> not going to take my son. I've already won. I've already conquered all this. So the enemy, I mean, you can't stumble out of his grip and the enemy can't take you out of his grip. The son who is one with the father is the one who's got you. I love this in, in our Revelation reading. It's the last thing we'll say before we get to our time of reflection. In the Revelation reading, it says, the lamb in the midst of them will be their shepherd. This one who became man, who took on flesh, who looks just like the rest of the sheep, is actually the shepherd because he is one with the Father. He is fully man, fully human, and fully God. And it takes someone who is both fully human, who can link arms with humanity, and someone who is fully God, who can link arms with divinity and, and, and hold that chain together. It takes someone of that dual nature to actually be our Savior. See, the reason Christ's grip strength is so strong is because he's got us both on both sides. He's got the Father eternally linked up, and he's got us through the, the, the indwelling spirit linked up, and he's pulling us together, and he's reconciling humanity to the Father. And this is what the shepherd is doing. He's leading us back to the source of true life, which is God himself. And he's a good shepherd who does this in spite of all the other ways that we want to go astray. So uh, Jared and, and Sarah, if you'd come up. We're going to take some time here. And there's a song I just want them to sing over us and for us to reflect through. And I've got a couple prompts for you. And I'd love for you to just spend about five minutes as they sing this over us to kind of soak in the lyrics, soak in, in the music. And to think of this, what... Or who have been your false shepherds? 
What's, what's been the Rome dominating you? Or what's been the, the, the Jewish leaders maybe in your life that have, that have been leading you away? Or what's the thing that you've submitted to that you thought was going to give you life but didn't work out? What has left you broken, isolated, burnout, maybe broke, addicted, left you ragged among the wild beasts? And do you hear the voice of Christ calling you? This one who is both God and man, this one who is the good shepherd, this one who brings eternal life and not condemnation. Do you see the the good shepherd chasing after you, breaking down every barrier coming to get you, coming to rescue you? Reflect on that as we listen to these words. For I spoke a word you were singing over me. You've been so, so good to me. For I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the night. Earn it, I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. All the overwhelming, never ending, reckless love of God. When I was your
So I just pray that the Holy Spirit would be moving in your lives, um, that He would be drawing you to, to the Father through the Son, that you would find the Good Shepherd because He is running after you. He's running after you. And He's calling you by name. And I know that when He calls you and you follow Him, you will find eternal life, undefiled and unending. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit.